This is the Engineering Career Coach Podcast, the only podcast dedicated to helping engineers succeed in work and life. The show is hosted by engineering enthusiast Anthony Fasano and Chris Knutson. Both are professional engineers who found success early in their careers and now work together to help other engineers do the same. Now it's showtime. Hello, this is Anthony Fasano, and this is the show for engineers and technical professionals who want to succeed in both work and life. All right, this is a pretty cool episode because most of today's episode was recorded at the offices of a company you may have heard of called Google in Midtown Manhattan. You're about to hear an interview where I was sitting across the table from one of the lead software engineers, John Sharkey, who works on the Google Waze app. Really, really interesting stuff. I was really elated. A friend of mine, Eric, who works at Google, was able to facilitate this meeting, and it was great. John and I talked about the app, but really what I was digging into with John was how they work on teams at Google, what the workflow looks like, tips on project management, et cetera. And then the Take Action Today segment, at the end, we did some productivity hacks. So it's a pretty interesting episode to kind of literally like go in inside Google, kind of check out how things operate. So I'm excited to share that. With you. Before we jump into that segment with John, I want to recognize our sponsor for today's episode, PPI. I have some exciting news. PPI, our exclusive exam prep podcast sponsor, is giving away $100 Amazon gift cards every month to our listeners. For more information on how to qualify, make sure to listen to my announcement later on in the episode. I also want to read something that was sent in from a gentleman named George Zorich in the Chicago area. I hope that I can use this podcast to do good. I hope that the content does good. It allows me to, you know, hopefully give you skill building tools, right? But I also want to use it for the community. So I I learned about this on LinkedIn. It's a special program and I want to just read this note from George and see if you can help him out. How do we get high school kids in the inner city or high-risk areas to pursue challenging technical degrees such as engineering? We need to expose them to actual engineering and inspire them. We currently have 20 high school juniors in a volunteer mentoring program in North Chicago and have just completed our third year mentoring these kids. You know the story. No dads, generational poverty, and stressed out moms. All the kids have so much potential, but we have one young man DeAndre, that I'm convinced will do great things someday. DeAndre has good grades, works two jobs, is responsible, is a great athlete, is disciplined, and is a pleasure to be around. He has really turned his life around. He's interested in STEM, and our group is funding a one-week introduction to engineering curriculum at Northwestern this summer that exposes him to what it's like to be an engineer and some of the classwork required. Bottom line. He really wants to be an engineer. My question to the podcast audience is this. Does anyone have a summer job for next year in 2018 that can expose DeAndre to an engineering-connected company the summer before he heads to college and hopefully becomes an engineer? If so, please contact George Zorich at georgezorich at gmail.com. That's G-E-O-R-G-E-Z-O-R-I-C-H. George Zorich at gmail.com. All right, George, thanks for doing what you're doing. Keep it up. And if we can help you, always feel free to let me know. All right, now to bring us into the main segment, let me give you just a quick intro to John Sharkey, my guest from Google. 
and a quick quote to bring us in. John Sharkey grew up in Canada, where he learned how to make video games in his parents' basement. He got a computer science degree and worked for various video game and app companies before working at Google. He's also worked as a software engineer at Facebook and Reddit. All right, here's the quote to take us in to this interview with John. Good, bad, or indifferent, if you are not investing in new technology, you are going to be left behind. And that's from Philip Green. All right, Anthony Fasano here. I am at the offices of Google in Midtown Manhattan today. I'm here with John Sharkey. John is an engineer who works on the Google Waze app. And I'm excited to be here and talk to John a little bit about the design behind the app and just working for Google as an engineer. So, John, welcome to the Engineering Career Coach Podcast. Hey, Anthony. Nice to meet you. All right. So, obviously, when you say Google, a lot of things come to mind. It's a big word. It's a big company. There's lots of things that we can talk about. We're going to talk specifically about the Waze app today. That's what John's focusing, and we'll talk about some specific projects that he's working on in Waze. But, John, why don't we start off for those listeners that aren't familiar with the app? Just give them a little description. Sure. Waze is an app you can use to get directions when you're driving in your car. It actually was started a long time ago in Israel. It's an Israeli company that Google bought about three years ago, maybe three and a half years ago now. So it's a GPS-based mobile app. You run it in your phone, you mount your phone in your car, and you can use it to get directions like any other GPS app. But what makes Waze different is it has a lot more sort of features built into it that other apps don't have, like you can report accidents, you can report uh, traffic problems, traffic jams. It always did a really good job of measuring traffic very well, giving you real-time updates. And Waze says it likes to help you beat traffic. It sort of gives you the best route to get somewhere as quickly as possible, better than any other app that's out there so far. Let me ask you this, because yeah. I'll be honest, I'm a new user of Google Waze because I didn't know about it. I use Google Maps app mm-hmm. most of the time. I met one of John's colleagues, Eric, here and learned about Waze and started using it. Does it have more of like it says there's other users? Is that the difference between some of these other? Yeah, Waze has more social features than Google Maps does, I would say. For example, you get points by reporting accidents. You have a little avatar, and he sort of changes and levels up as you get more points. So there's that fun aspect to it. You'll see other drivers on the road anonymized. Like mm-hmm. You'll see other little users traveling around, and so it adds sort of a more social feel to it. And so it's a bit more fun and social than other apps. Um, you can also message people if you have friends and things like that in Waze. All right, so, John, before we talk about your work with Waze, let's talk in general about Google like working for Google. As an engineer, we know engineering jobs could be high pressure. There's a lot going on, especially in the technology space. Everything is really fast moving. There's certainly a lot of things you hear about Google being a very good place to work. So just your general perspective of how you've liked working at Google. Working at Google is probably, no, I was definitely the best job I've had. I've worked at other big companies like IBM and Facebook. I've worked at like a couple small startups and a couple medium-sized companies. And so I feel like I've got a good breadth of things to compare it to. And like overall, for me, Google is the best. Lots of different reasons. Obviously, like the benefits are nice and things like that. Like free lunch. Can't complain about that. (laughs) It's great. But one of the best things about Google was when I first started, I was a little worried about keeping up, being smart enough to work here, things like that. But it ended up being sort of having to worry about that. It ended up actually being a great thing to work with such smart people because I feel like I became a better engineer faster here than anywhere else I've worked. Hmm. Like, 
rather than having to worry about be keeping up, I feel like I was able to like rise to the level really easily. And Google did a great job of making that happen. That's so great. to me, that is the number one thing about working here. You felt comfortable. Yeah. That is important. And I could totally understand that Google or another company like a Google, there could be a lot of pressure walking in the door because of their Google. Can I do the job? So that's interesting. Just for the listeners, John, give me your background as far as like educational and like what you were trained in. Sure. I grew up in Canada. I did a computer science degree in a small college in my hometown. I moved to then Toronto from Halifax, where I grew up, to go to the University of Toronto for grad school. I was doing a master's in computer science there, but I never actually finished my thesis. I took four months off to work at my friend's video game company and then decided that was much more fun than school <laughs> and ended up just deciding to continue with that instead. Okay. And that was the beginning of my career. So would you say, if someone says, like, what do you do? Would you say, I'm a software engineer or how do you? I say I'm a software engineer because that's what my title is at Google. Okay, yeah. that's what your title is at Google. And you've worked at Google for roughly? About uh, six and a half years now. All right, so let's get into your work now with Google Ways. It's a complex application. It does a lot of things. Like you said, it, it can give you an idea of the traffic real time, which is awesome, which to mm-hmm. me means that there's a lot of moving parts on the back end with all of the engineers and all the work here right. in the office. What does that look like as far as you're working on a day-to-day basis, regular things that the engineers need to keep up on. Just talk to me a little bit about you know, how you make Google Ways run, I guess. So like you said, there's like a complicated backend because it does a lot of things like real-time routing of traffic, things like that. Keeping up with traffic in real time. I think it updates the traffic model every two minutes or something like wow. that. The phone, the GPS on your phone is being pinged every few seconds to like get your location. And then so then it's taking in information from like millions of users and mixing that all up. So there's a complicated backend, and there's also sort of a complicated client, which is what runs on your phone. And so I work mostly on the software that runs on the phone. So I do uh, a lot of iPhone development, but I do some Android stuff as well. The actual, so you work on the actual application that we see on the phone. Yeah, that's right. There's a lot of coordination between the team that writes the application that runs on the phone, the client team, and the server team. Let's say we're going to build a new feature like parking, for example. Like we might recommend a good spot for you to park if we think we know where parking, where people tend to park. We have a new parking feature. I don't know if it works exactly like this, but I'll just use this as an example. Sure. There'd be a lot to define for like, how are we going to get this data and how's the backend going to process it and what information does it really know? And we have to decide how do we present this to the user and what like does the interface look like? And so the first part is more of the backend team. The second part is obviously more of us on the client team. And then we also have to work on the interface between the two. So we have to like meet, come up with APIs, proposed APIs, plan that kind of stuff, a lot of coordination. And so even though we're separate teams, we have to constantly be in sync just to make sure that these features work well. Talk together. to each other, basically. Yeah, talk to each other. Okay, so basically you've got the, this amazing amount of data that comes in, which is on a server, and then that data more or less is getting displayed or utilized for users through the app on the phone. And right. there's got to be, and there's a team on each or large teams on each, and then those teams need to get together to make sure that the information goes from one to the other to produce the end result, right? Yeah, that's right. Pretty much. Yeah, so we have product managers who sort of help coordinate these things, work with the engineers, and then engineers can talk to each other as well. We, being, communicating constantly sort of helps help these things happen. Right, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about, I guess, project management or workflow or however someone wants to describe it. What are things that you're doing on a regular basis to work with, this other team or to make sure that these two teams work together in their meetings or their tools. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we have weekly syncs usually. Like 
at least spend half an hour in a room, either physically or virtually with these video conference units, discussing problems, roadblocks, making sure everyone's on the same page, raising red flags, that kind of thing. We do weekly meetings. We will also regularly chat with each other face-to-face -face or over chat messaging programs. Would you say that there's like people on each team designated kind of to talk with the other team or are the two are members of the two teams just constantly interacting across the board? We'd like to keep Google in general and also like the Waze team does this as well, keeps a pretty flat structure. Like people feel pretty comfortable asking anyone a question. So okay. if I had a question for someone on the other team, I would just go to them directly. I wouldn't go through like their manager or product manager or something. Okay, which I guess makes sense. But I guess my question or the reason I'm asking it is because if you and like someone on the other team are communicating, but other people on the team need to be aware of that, does that get done through an email or through a sharing tool so or something? There's lots of tools we use. There's a lot of email that gets back and forth. We use a lot of Google Docs. So a lot okay. of like shared docs where people will, usually uh, an engineer or a product manager will write a design doc. There's actually there's a product design doc. So let's say we're going to build this new parking feature. Product manager would probably write out sort of a product design doc of what they think the product should look like. Maybe even, if they often have technical backgrounds, they might even get into a little bit of how they think it should work technically. For oh, example, okay. they could be like, we get data from here and we can use it in this way and figure out these things. And it might be a little high level, but they'll generally have some idea of how this feature might actually function technically. So a product manager will write out what that should look like. An engineer, then also they'll work with a designer. So a visual designer or a user experience person to sort of maybe put up screenshots of how it should look on the phone to the okay. user. And so there's that level of the design. And then the lead engineer on it, like the tech lead, will write an engineering design doc, sort of a plan as to how we're going to actually engineer this, what the coding will look like, sort of which team will be responsible for which pieces, that kind of stuff. So we have these docs, and people will comment on the docs all the time. And people hmm. will like, if you disagree with something or you think someone's wrong, or you have a concern, or you think you have a better idea, you can just leave a little comment on the side, and you can have like chats about it okay. within the doc. We do that a lot. That's a way to communicate. These are docs that are basically like, there's certain docs that the engineers would be looking at on a regular basis. That's right. So then everyone is sort of looking at all the docs all the time. Everyone has access to them. So be looking at them on a regular basis, keeping up with like changes and things like that, because sometimes there'll be changes. But also outside of the docs, there's also just emails that go back and forth, face-to-face -face communication. Okay. It's actually it can be a bit chaotic sometimes. Yeah. And so it was actually, that was one of the difficult things when I started at Google was like fire hose of information, they call it, like sort of just at you. And it's hard to keep up with and to know what to pay attention to because there's so much coming at you all the time. So I'd say all the emails and all the, the docs, the emails, the face-to-face -face communication, the video chats, all this stuff, sort of takes practice to learn how to like filter it correctly and keep up and stay calm. Well, that's like what I'm wondering, because to me, the work that you do I would imagine that there's stretches where you have to be really like focused on doing something, whether it's like a design yeah. or a coding or whatever the case may be, meaning that you somehow have to be able to focus and then at the same time you have tons of information being thrown at you in a lot of different medias, documents. That's a good emails. point. So have you learned to just kind of deal with it or do you do things to like where say where I got to focus for an hour on coding or whatever? How does that look? Yeah, everyone has different approaches. I tend to work in a very interrupted way anyways. Like... I sort of tend, my mind is kind of, the way I work is my mind is kind of always scattered anyways. And so I don't mind if there's a lot of interruptions with what I'm doing. And that works well for me. Sometimes I need to focus on something directly and then I have ways to deal with that. And some engineers are more focused than I am and need to do this regularly. But the techniques we generally use are we might step away from our desk 
and like find like in the office there's lots of places to sit okay and maybe you'll step away from your desk and go somewhere don't tell anyone you went there <laughs> turn off chat google hangouts chat okay. and, uh, and, your app, and then actually just go disconnect for an hour if someone really needs you they can call your phone there's really an emergency so people just disconnect people will step away people might like work from home for the morning something like that okay so the flexibility is good there that can help you sort of maybe be in a quiet place and away from the constant interruptions at work People find ways to do it. Some teams have a headphones on rule, which is like, if I have my headphones on, it means I'm like in the zone. Don't interrupt me. So there's no specific way people deal with this, but everyone has their own little techniques to sort of like make sure they can find time to focus. And I'm here with John in the office here at Google. So we walked around a bit and it is an open floor plan and everyone is out in the open with the exception of some exterior offices. I would imagine that it's something that everyone in one way or another has to get used to. But as John described, there's outlets and there's things that you can do if you really need to isolate yourself to focus. And I I agree with John. I think people are different. I tend to be along the same lines as John where I kind of, in some ways, I even thrive on a lot of distractions. I can work well with it. I can switch gears. I can switch to something and go back, which I know that there's like debate about like how long it takes your brain to get restarted. But I think people are different. I actually read a, a really good book called Deep Work by Cal Newport recently, and he basically analyzes this, and he does identify a type of person that thrives in these conditions, and they have the ability to switch back and forth. It's up to your, you have to see what works well for you. My wife's an engineer, and they have kind of an open floor plan, and she struggles a lot with the distraction. So you have to kind of see what works best for you. And along those lines, John, I mean, I think it's perceived that Google and maybe not just Google, but other some of these tech companies are very laid back when it comes to staffing and how you work, like as far as dictating your work and how you do it. Would you agree that Google's like a little bit more laid back with that? Yeah, I think so. I think they're serious about you getting your work done, but they're laid back in the sense that, yeah, they don't dictate to you how you should do it. They try to hire people who can manage themselves. Like obviously you have a manager who's there to help you, but most people are sort of given a task and it's given lots of great resources to help you solve it, but then it's up to you to figure out how to solve it. So if that means, like, no one measures when you come to the office. There's no hours to check in and check out. Sort of, you're measured kind of on your output more than your input, is how it was described to me once. So it's up to you. It's like, whatever works for you. Google tries to, is quite accommodating, which is great. And they provide lots of resources to find the things that you need to get your job done. But they don't tell you how you should work, which is cool. No, it is cool. And I honestly, I think just in talking with a lot of engineers and talking with different companies, I think it's such a great way to motivate your staff and employees and team really is to say to them essentially that they we are going to measure you by your output, not like your input, meaning whatever that is, hours worked or where you worked or how long something took you. Because I think a lot in the in more in the design engineering world, as far as where I came from, which is private consulting, I did a lot of civil engineering, roads, bridges, highways, you're very much measured off of the hours you work. People see you leave at a certain time and they say, you know, why are you leaving at five o'clock or whatever? And I think that over time that wears an employee down, an engineer down mentally and just kind of wears you out. And it gets you to the point where I can't get excited about working here. Because I know people are just looking at like artificial measurements Mm -hmm. as opposed to my output. That being said, let's shift gears a little bit here. One of the things that's important to me in my career is that I work on projects that have an impact on people, on society, on the world. And there's no doubt that Google Waze has that, especially one of these new projects or the one that's going to launch here in California that I'll let John talk a little bit about with some ride sharing, which is really cool. 
just give our uh, listeners a little idea about this project, John. Sure. So this is actually what got me to work with Waze in the first place. I worked on other teams at Google before Waze. But Waze is doing a new project called Waze Carpool, which is trying to encourage people to share rides to and from work. I got excited about it because I hate driving, I hate traffic. It's funny, I'd work for Waze when I hate driving. <laughs> but this feature gets rid of cars. Waze is changing their motto from let's improve traffic together to let's eliminate traffic together. So the idea is, so Waze Carpool, I'll just quickly describe what it is, but it's whether I'm driving, whether I want to drive someone else to work or get a ride to work, I can sort of tell Waze, hey, I'm going to drive to work tomorrow from here to here, tomorrow at 8.30, find me someone to sit in my seat. And then there's also people saying, hey, I need a ride to work tomorrow at 8.30, find me a ride. And so it'll use lot, taking all this data, optimally match people, and then say, hey, Anthony, you should pick up John on your way to work. And then it'll match us up, tell us exactly where to pick me up. And then it'll be like a nice experience where I, I can see you coming, we can communicate, get in the ride together. It's not professional ride sharing. You as a driver, you're not going to make a profit off of it. You're not going to use this instead of being an Uber driver. If you are driving to work and you want to use the carpool lane, you want to save money, save money or gas, you want to help the environment, yeah, so those are like those are the three big reasons I think people would use it, then yeah, you might use it. So you like the rider will chip in, automatically calculates a price, and you'll end up chipping in for gas and wear and tear on the car. Oh. But it's not enough that you'll be making a profit off of it. But it'll, you'll, you'll be sharing the cost of the ride. And how does it work as far as, is it, first of all, is it a separate app? So there's a separate app called Waze Carpool that you use if you want to get a ride from someone. Okay. So if you are a passenger, if you would like to get a ride to work, you use Waze Carpool. And because Waze is the app you're already using to drive, if you want to pick someone up, you use Waze to coordinate with it. I see. So, so there's I, two apps now. I would imagine that this is all going to be streamlined. So if two people have the Carpool app, the money can flow from one to the other, like as far as with the gas tolls. How's that work? How's that part of it work? How does the money flow from the... Like, how does it... Like, if yeah. I'm sharing with you, yeah. right, I'm going to give you money now? Is that how it works? Like? So you pay through the app. So the passenger pays with their credit card through the app, and then the driver gets money deposited to their bank account once a month. You as the driver, you don't need to wait for me to pay. Like, the system will pay you right. as the driver. It's automated. And then as the passengers, I'm expected to pay the system, and it's all automated. I think that's good. Like, not having to deal with cash is nice. That's um, huge. I mean, that's why people love Uber. I mean, that's why I love Uber, because, you know, you don't have to worry about tipping, having yeah. cash on you, having singles, worrying about your wallet. You get in, you go, and Makes you go. Makes things seamless. And this is cool, too, because now, like you said, it's taking cars off the road. Good for the environment. Saves you money, potentially. Like you said, these are all things that people right now are really interested in. The prices are good. It's, in some places, it's cheaper than public transit to take wow. a ride with someone instead. That's not true everywhere, but in some places it is. We're also adding a new feature where drivers can offer rides for free if they want to. Because a lot of people say, like, I just don't need, like, I'm not doing this for the money. Like, the amount of money isn't huge. They're doing it to help the environment or to have, like, company on the road or to use a carpool lane. And so just to make things easier, we're going to let them just also ride for free, which is good. So now let's take this back to the engineering side of things for you. Sure. We talked about having this major data center server and then the Waze app that you deliver the, the service to people through. These are the two main things. Does this add something out? Like how does this fit in now, the carpool? So there's the new app, for one thing. There's the Waze Carpool app. And that's actually what I work on. Okay. Um, so another team now, would you say? Yeah. So there's another team. Okay. So there's a few engineers working on... So there's an iOS and an Android app. My little team runs the iPhone app. And then there's another team that does the Android app. We also work with 
engineers who make the way, Mainways app because it has the carpool features built into it for drivers as well. So we have to coordinate with them. We talk to various backend servers as well. So for example, there's the what's called the Waze routing server, and it has traffic data and things like that. It tells us if you're coming to pick me up and uh, you're getting close, it'll start to give me your coordinates so that the mobile app can show where you are and move the car okay. on the map. And you've probably seen that in other apps. So we talk to that server to sort of get that information. There's what we call the carpool server, which handles like carpool user accounts. It does the matching. So it does, it takes in all the data of users and their commutes and figures out the optimal matches for people for, to share rides together. Okay. And so there's that, there's that server. And so we talk to that to sort of send ride requests. So if I'm a passenger and I want to ride tomorrow, I send a ride request. It handles, yeah, like I said, accounts, matching. There's a separate server that handles communication. So if I want to send you messages or call you, it handles all of those interactions. It's another team, really. You have, yeah. another, you have the whole carpool team that works now back with the Waze team. So the carpool team and the Waze team, there are people who focus specifically on some carpool features. Like, for example, my team focuses on the carpool iPhone app specifically. Okay. Like, there's a team that might even just be one guy that build the messaging server. So if I want to send someone a message through Waze. And so that touches the main Waze app, but also the carpool features. And so that person deals with both. It's, all very, it's kind of flexible. It's flexible, yeah. yeah. It's evolving, I guess. I guess it is flexible and evolving for sure. Technology is evolving. <laughs> yeah, we have like teams focus on specific things, but we try to be. We'll work with whoever we need to, and you know, people can step out of the role and work on something else if they need to. We kind of just do what needs to get done. So I know Google, like for example, Google Maps. Like you'll see cars driving around with the cameras on them and stuff, saying Google Maps on the car. For Google Waze, do you guys have to go out and get data, or does it all come from the users? So the original way it worked was the maps were built entirely from the users. So when Waze began, the way it worked was when you're driving around with your phone and you have Waze on, if people are driving through this piece of the world with Waze, it means that there's a road there, and so Waze knows that there's a road there. Okay. Uh, and so it can build up the map that way. And then the community labels the roads. We have a map editor. There's a website you can go to uh, with a map editor, and then... Users can actually like tweak the map and update uh, labels and name roads and things like that. And there's people who get really into this. There's like uh, map editing heroes who spend a lot of time like like people are obsessed with Wikipedia. Some people are obsessed with editing maps, and they just (laughs) it's their hobby, Uh, which is great. Which is great because then you guys they're helping you guys. Yeah, for sure, helping us. It's part of the community aspect of ways, like I mentioned before. Like it's a bit more social, and so it's great. Waze also, like, I know they get map data from other sources as well. Like, Google Maps has a lot of map data that, was, that Waze sometimes uses to help improve their maps, things like that. It comes from all sorts of sources. Originally, it was very entirely community-driven, and these days it's a mix, but still mostly community, I think. So that project is in use in limited areas right now? The Carpool, the carpool? Project? Yes. Yeah, so we've been in sort of a trial. It's been available in... Israel and the San Francisco Bay Area for about a year now, sort of so we could iterate, like we're constantly... feedback. And... Yeah, get feedback, see how it's working. Like every two weeks, we release a new version of the app and the backend server is changing every week. And so we're always adding new features and tweaking things and just trying to see what works best. But we're at the stage now where we feel like we're ready for a wider launch. And so we're launching to the whole state of California on June 6th, 5th or 6th, I forget, That's sometime awesome. next week. Just a question about, again, back to the workflow part of this. Do you guys have any kind of system that you use for like task management? Is it a, like a Google system or? Yeah, so there's a Google system called Bugganizer. It's like a bug tracking tool. So we work in two-week sprints. 
So I'll, I'll focus on specifically on the app that I work oh, on. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, two-week yeah. sprints. Okay, yeah. So we release every two weeks. At the start of those two weeks, we have a sync, like we talked about having like weekly syncs. So there's a meeting where we plan what we want to go into the next release. So that'll be like product managers and engineers and designers sitting together to discuss like what they think the most important things are. So then we'll make a list of features that we want to get into the next release. We'll use this tool called Bugganizer and create feature bug for the new things that we want to do. We'll also have real bugs, like things that are just broken in the app. And those will have Bugganizer entries as well. And then, and so there'll be a list of things to do, either new features or bugs to fix. For it's like task management for software engineers, like really focused around the bugs and the... Yeah. Is that right? Okay. And then you can set a priority on them. So you can have like P0, P1, P2, P3, where the lower the number, the higher priority it is. P0 means get this done. P1 is like, this is pretty important. P2 means that you're probably not going to do it. So you prioritize them. And we use that to keep track of what's left to do. And so for the engineers, what we actually do is you can assign the bugs to different people. And so we kind of load balance. We assign the different people on the team. We also have a pretty loose philosophy where if you started to work on something, you change the status from assigned to accepted. It means you're working on it. But if I see a bug that's on someone else that's still assigned and they haven't accepted it yet, I'll be like, oh, I could do that today. And you might just take it and work on it. And so oh, we're all just work together. We all see what the list of stuff to do is. You can easily see who's working on what right now. And then just use that to keep track of the remaining work for the two weeks. So it's not like you're looking at a list of things that you have to do, per se. No, you're seeing a list of what the team has to do. What the team has to do. Oh, that's interesting. And you're working together to get it all done. So when you said two-week sprints, Uh meaning that every two weeks the app gets the update from all the information that's come in over the last two weeks, is that what you mean by two-week sprints? Two-week sprints of writing new code. So to add new features or to fix bugs. And then at the end of those two weeks, we will cut a release, which means we like this is the next version of the app, and we'll submit it to the App Store. So okay. it'll the version will change from when you use your iPhone and you download a new update and it changes from 118 to 119. That's the result of that two weeks of work, which is just really constant changes and improvements based on the feedback, right? For sure, yeah, based on feedback of how like feedback from users, what people are complaining about, looking at the data, seeing what works and what doesn't work, planning for new things, adding new features. For example, what's a new feature we added recently? The ability to offer rides for free, like that required changes to the app to let you make that happen, changes to the back end as well. And so for one two-week sprint, we might have one engineer who spends a day or two making it so that there's an interface to offer a ride for free. For example, with that specific feature, is that something where maybe like a bunch of people said, I'd like to give someone a ride for free? Yeah, we had some feedback from people who were saying they didn't even want to deal with the money. That was actually just a pain for them. That's cool. See, that's sort of the nice thing about community-driven apps like this is because as a user, whether you realize it or not, and maybe hopefully this conversation with John will help you to realize it, is that you can have an impact. If you think to yourself, like, oh, I'm not even going to bother writing these guys or leaving a message because no one's going to listen to me, it's not necessarily the case. I mean, if enough people have the same situation as you, in two weeks there could be a change or, you know, however many weeks it takes for that feature to be designed, it's possible. Yeah, every piece of feedback we get. I used to read, when we were still a small trial, I used to read every piece of feedback we got from every single user. There's too much of it now for me to keep up with, but there's a team of people called the ops team, and they take all this data. How do the people give you feedback? Through the app? Yeah, through the app is one way to do it. So in the app, if you go to the menu, there's a feedback option. I also made it so that if you take a screenshot, it pops up the feedback system as well. So then with the screenshot attached, and you can just type in a note and send it to them. A lot of the bugs I have, I'll often fix bugs that are attached to this feedback report where this person says, hey, this thing was broken. 
And then I will take that, and then it'll, a bug will get created out of it. It'll go into Bugganizer, and then one of us will fix it. I mean, obviously, we could talk about Waze for a while here. It's a really cool app, and it sounds like the Waze team is doing really cool things, especially with this carpool. But what I want to do here as we start to kind of wrap it up is ask John maybe one more question about Waze and then a couple final questions in general, Google and technology. But just one thing about the Waze, which I found interesting when you talk about these two-week sprints from a workflow, maybe like mindset approach, is a lot of engineers that listen to this show I know have long project cycles. And I know Waze is an ongoing long project as well, but the idea of this two-week sprint is just interesting to me. And I wonder for you as someone working on the team, how that affects you. Is it something like, because I know like when you have a deadline, it's a deadline. It becomes stressful. You got a lot of stuff to do. Yeah. Is that like you have to deal with that every two weeks or? Sort of, but in some ways it helps that problem. And by that, I mean, you do have a deadline every two weeks. And so every two weeks, there's the stress of getting in what you want to get in. There's also the relief of knowing that if something's not done, it's only two more weeks until the next week. So it makes it, if you released once every six months, then it's really critical that you get this stuff in or it's just not going to make it. It's not done. But for us, like there's a little more flexibility. Often there's hard deadlines around like launches, like the California launch uh, to all of California. There might be like specific press about a new feature that's coming out. And so it has to be in a certain release. But often if something slips, it can be okay. And so it kind of helps that. It sort of turns it into a marathon instead of a sprint, in a way. We have this living, breathing product that we're constantly changing. And when you make a change, it goes out pretty quickly, two weeks, which is nice. And so that's actually great, too, because it means that, like, when you change something or you try something new, you get to see the results really quickly, which is exciting. Yeah. If I had to wait six months to see it, right. that, that would be is, different. That is cool. So those are some big kind of, I would say, takeaways at least for me, this conversation around workflow is this idea of shared tasks is really cool because I know in a lot of places you have your tasks, someone else on your team has tasks, and once in a while you might get together and trade tasks or delegate a task. But in this case, like at any time, someone could pull a tag, you know, do something that you thought maybe you were going to have to do, which I think lends more to a team effort for me. It would make me feel a little bit like I have everyone here to work on these with, which is cool. I like this two-week sprint thing is nice because I think it's good to have short-term goals to work towards. Otherwise, if you're working on a six-month project, you could lose engagement. It could become a little bit uninteresting. But at the end of the day, it's not like you're up against this monumental, stressful deadline every 14 days because you know that if you get maybe 100 things in instead of 102, those other two things only have 14 more days to get in again. John, as we're like wrapping up here, just to transition out and talk a little bit about Mark Google in general. Obviously, Google has so many projects going on, so many applications. Being that you've worked for Google for a while and in some different areas of Google, I can't even imagine the process, but just big picture, how does something get to an app? Where does it start? Or even a project like Google Docs. There are these meetings at Google where a bunch of people get together from different teams and like brainstorm. Is there anything that that happened? I'm not sure if something like specifically like that happens. But new products at Google come from a variety of sources. Sometimes Google might buy a company like Waze. Google Docs came out of an acquisition as well. Some projects like Gmail come out of 20% projects. So it could be some employees sort of just had a little side project, something they were interested in. They had an idea and they try it out. And then if you work on something like that and it gets traction, it could turn into a whole product or end up being like Gmail turned into like a whole like giant team. So new products come out of things like that. Sometimes they come from high up, sometimes like, a VP might have an idea and sort of build a team and get something done. 
So I'd say it could be bottom-up, come from the employees, and that's usually side projects people do sort of in a little extra time they have. And if they build something cool, then maybe they'll get budget and to hire a little team and build it up into something cool. It could come from high up. It could be that the head of a specific org once has a vision and they, they make it happen. It could come from buying a company. There's also something Google has called Area 120, which is an incubator within Google. And so the idea is instead of leaving Google to go to a startup, to stay within Google and do it within Google, and you can apply to it. You sort of make a little proposal. You do a deck like you were pitching to investors. And if you're accepted, you get to go build this app within Google. So there's, As an employee. As an employee. That's really cool. Then it eliminates the risk of going out. and Yeah. A... It eliminates a lot of the risk because you still get your Google salary and you get the free lunch. Also, if it's a huge success, there's like a bonus structure built into it for that. I think that's really cool. So that could help like innovate creative ideas within Google as well. And Google's done other incubator ideas like that as well. But Area 120 is the current. I guess part of the reason I was asking was because it seems like a lot of the Google apps and projects that get created are born out of the need of Google staff. Like, for example, this mm. Buginator thing. Was this something built for the Google teams that work on apps? And is it a public thing now, or is it only for use with Google employees? I think it's only for use with Google employees. But often tools like this do become public. Do become public, okay. Uh, usually through, like, the Google Cloud. The Google Cloud is Google's, like, third-party developer if you want to build stuff on Google's infrastructure. A lot of the tools in Google Cloud started off as internal tools for, hmm. for developers here. Buganizer, I just don't know if it's public or if. I mean, I know this for sure. I've seen it before that things in Google could start out of something that a team needs. It could get developed and it could eventually become a public tool that could be used by the public. For sure. Which is cool, which is really innovative, of course. Yeah, we open source, like, we've open sourced some of the developer tools we use and things like that. Like we have a build system called Blaze. So software engineers use build systems. They help you organize your code and you sort of tell the system, here's the code you need to compile in to make the server or to make this app. So Google built their own system called Basil, and then they open-sourced it recently. Oh, yeah. cool. I'm not sure who's using it, but it's cool that they put it out there. All right, so we talked a lot of stuff here with John related to workflow and what he does as an engineer here at Google. We're just going to take a break for one minute, and I'm going to come back. i got a couple of final things for John about tech tools and tech tips and stuff like that. So hang out for a minute, and we'll come back and finish this one off. Now it's time for the Take Action Today segment of our show where I'm going to continue my conversation with John from Google and we're going to jump into some productivity hacks for you. But before I do that, I want to take a moment to recognize our sponsor for today's episode, PPI. If you're preparing for the civil PE exam, you probably know that the Civil Engineering Reference Manual by Michael Lindenberg is the book to use. Michael Lindenberg is actually the founder and president of PPI, the leader in FE and PE exam prep. PPI has new prep courses available for the civil PE exam that offer complete coverage of not only the morning breath exam, but also your choice of afternoon depth exams. The course presents over 60 hours of new content and walks you through tons of exam-like practice problems. When you enroll in the live online prep course, PPI also includes on-demand lectures for free so you can start studying while you wait for the course to begin. Through October 2017, PPI will be choosing two of our podcast listeners per month to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you enroll in this course. To enter the raffle, visit www.ppitopass.com forward slash civil prep. Again, that's www.ppi, the number two, pass forward slash civil prep. From there, you'll need to choose your course and check out. 
on the checkout page, enter the promo code PREP and then complete your enrollment. Again, you need to enter the promo code PREP before completing your enrollment to qualify for the gift card. You'll be notified on the first of the month if you won the $100 gift card. I used PPI for my PE exam prep, so I feel confident in recommending that you check out this prep course. Plus, you could win $100. Good luck. All right, so I'm still here in the Google offices talking to John Sharkey, who works on Google Waze. We've talked quite a bit about Waze earlier in the episode. Now, we're just going to close up here in the Take Action Today segment with some productivity hacks, tips, things that might be helpful for you. And I wanted to bring this up because I was explaining to John here as we were prepping that I started to use the Google, uh, the Gmail shortcuts. If you use Gmail, you can go into the settings and put the keyboard shortcuts on. And the first day or a couple of days, it's really a pain because you're not used to using your keyboard. But I'm telling you, after you get used to it, you can do an email session in no time and never even touch your mouse because that's how the shortcuts work. And John was explaining to me that he basically uses it as well. Yeah, like before I said how there's a fire hose of information here, I think I was saying I probably get something like 200 emails a day, which sounds insane, but large part of them I don't need to read because they're from various mailing lists I'm on, or they're just about like random Taco Tuesday at the office or random, <laughs> random things like that. So I don't need to actually read every single, every word of every email. And so I use the keyboard shortcuts. I go through the list of emails by subject. I select them one by one with keyboard shortcuts. I can go through it really quickly with yeah. my, just by tapping keys really quickly. And I'm checking subjects to see what's important. And I just quickly delete all the unimportant emails so then I can focus on the important ones. If I had to do that with a mouse, I'd probably spend another half an hour a day doing it. Yeah. And that's huge. That is huge. We also talked a little bit about calendars. So there's some shared calendars here at Google. And you can go in and block time off if you want to get away and focus on coding or something like that. You can literally put it on the calendar that you're not to be disturbed. Yeah, some people will mark off a whole day to be like, don't book a meeting with me today. Don't interrupt me. I need to go focus on coding this thing today. Some people create no meeting Wednesdays, they call them, things like that. Oh, wow. But yeah, calendars. See that, Taco Tuesdays, no <laughs> meeting Wednesdays. <laughs> Great. <laughs> All the benefits of Google. But the calendars are generally, most people's calendars are public, which is also great because if you want to meet with someone, you can usually like just look at their calendar, see when they're free and try to book some time with them. So again, it takes out one level of communication. You don't have to email someone and say, when are you available? You can look at the calendar, which makes it streamlined. We also talked a little bit about meetings. We know that for engineers, technical professionals all over, meetings are critical. John talked about for Google Ways, how they do a sync uh, once a week. So I was just asking John, there must be an amazing amount of information that goes around during the sync. Talk about how that gets captured and then acted on. Often there'll be a person taking notes at the sink, and it could be anyone. Ideally, you'll take turns taking notes or something like that. But at a lot of meetings, someone is taking notes. They write it into a Google Doc, kind of just in point form, summarizing everything that's been said. And if it comes up in the meeting that someone needs to do something, we'll call it an action item, and then we'll tag that person in the doc. We'll, your username will be tagged on that section of the doc, saying, here's an action item for you to get done. And then it's up to that person to go make it happen. This is a huge source of frustration, I think, for a lot of engineers is meetings. Because number one, I think they probably feel that they have too many of them. But number two, if you have a meeting and it's not productive, it's really a waste. And in my opinion, you need to capture these action items and you need to act on them. Because if you don't do that, you're lost. And I think using Google Docs, and I wish more engineers and engineering companies would use Google Docs, is a great way to do it. Because what I've seen in a lot of these meetings is people, everyone has a notebook or like an iPad or something, and they're making their own notes 
and then everybody leaves the meeting and you're not really sure who took the notes, who's got the notes, who knows, are you sure they're going to do that? Do they have that? So I think one point or one source of taking and gathering that data is perfect. And then as long as it gets into an action item list, like in this case, the buginator or whatever tool you might use, then it can be really, really awesome. All right, John, last thing. Has there any, as far as apps for you, obviously you work on an app all day, so you must have a lot of apps that you use on your phone, or is there anything, any apps that maybe that jump out that you use a lot that people might not know about or that you just want to mention? Good question. Some of the standard apps I use all day, every day, everyone else uses, like I use Google Maps for subway directions every day and email and web browsing, of course, and Facebook, stuff like that. But what else do I use every day? My favorite podcast app, I use Downcast. I tend to stick to like those core apps, everyday use, and then I do a lot of web browsing and that's basically it. Listen, I think that that's the challenge in today's world is that there's a million apps and you can really get bogged down. I notice that I have a lot of apps on my phone. Every so often I go through them and I clear them because a lot of them I just don't use. There, something pops up at you, you see it, it looks interesting, you download it and really use it. So I would recommend that to people on a regular basis to check out what app. I do think when you talk about productivity, talk about focus, the more things that are available to you can also take your energy down for sure. So I would just try to streamline. I guess I would say the best you can. Apps are powerful, but pick the right ones and try to make the best out of them. One thing I do personally is I don't let most apps send me notifications. Some apps, like if it's a messaging app and I want to know when my girlfriend's messaging me, of course, I'll let, <laughs> let, it, buzz, let it buzz me. But like for a lot of things, I don't need to know when someone comments on my Facebook photo. So right. I turn notifications off. It helps me focus more on what I'm doing. Well, John, thank you so much for having us here and for talking to us about Waze and all the cool stuff you're doing here at Google with the share ride and, and all the other aspects of the project. I just really appreciate the time. It's been fun. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Engineering Career Coach podcast. Be sure to visit engineeringcareercoach.com where you can find all past episodes and also download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also to help develop your leadership abilities. Now is the time to engineer your own success.